Welcome to Follow Your Kind Podcast, a show where we explore the meaning of kindness and how we can express it in our daily lives. My name is Christina and I'm your host. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Follow Your Kind uh, Podcast. And today we have Rebecca Portman. Rebecca is a food and nutrition coordinator at Forward Food, a program of the Humane Society of the United States. Hi, Rebecca. Hi. Thanks for having me on your podcast, Follow Your Kind. Oh, yes. Thank you so much for coming over. And I'm holding in my hands the book um, that is called The Humane Economy by Wayne Paselli. Right? Is that how you say it? That is, yes. Terrible with names. Yes. Uh, but this is how we met at the book signing um of this book and I got your uh, business card in my hand from that time and uh, we have been working slowly um, a little bit more in the past ever since so it's it's great to finally sit down and have a conversation so thank you so much for coming over. My pleasure thank you for having me. Yes that book signing I guess that was a couple of years ago Wayne Paselli was then the CEO of the Humane Society of the United States which he is no longer but that book, The Humane Economy, had just come out, and it's a fabulous read about how the decisions that we make in lots of different arenas in our life affect our finances and a company or organization's successes or failures, and so it's a really interesting read. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I remember that I actually listened to it on Audible before I heard about the book signing, and then when I saw that he was coming to Atlanta, I was like... Oh my God. And I first moved, I think it was right after I moved to Atlanta. So it was just, it was really cool to, to see him making the appearance here and uh, yeah, meet him in person, but it's, it really is a great read and it, it um, incorporates an approach from all different uh, sides, right? There is animal agriculture, there is circus, there is uh, animal testing and uh, just the stock, the, the global growth stock and the environment um, impact as well as the entertainment. So it's a, Pretty well-rounded read. Right. And what we choose or how we choose to spend our money uh, or not spend our money and how businesses and organizations choose to do business. Right. Okay. Well, enough about the book. Back yeah. to you. So let's let's get it started. Tell me your plant-based vegan story. How did you start and uh, where where is the passion coming from for the work you do today? Yeah, wow. I grew up in Savannah, Georgia, eating fried chicken and cheeseburgers. All right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so here in Georgia, all the schools have fried chicken Wednesday. And so um, oftentimes I'm doing my particular work with forward food on those days, which is always interesting <laughs> since everything I do is about plant based and I'm doing it on fried chicken Wednesdays. But I certainly can relate. Karma. <laughs> Right. Karma, right. Everyone goes around. So I I guess about seven years ago, I was living in Baltimore, Maryland. I was working with uh, Court Appointed Special Advocates for Children, which is an organization that advocates for children and their welfare. Mm -hmm. And it was during that time that I knew that I wanted to pursue something with non-human animal welfare. And I looked at the website for the Humane Society of the United States because I had been familiar with the organization mm -hmm. from, you know, supporting them and doing different volunteer jobs. And I was looking for something remote because they were located in Gaithersburg, Maryland, and I was in Baltimore and I couldn't make that commute because I had a, a, a fairly young child at that time and a full-time job. So I found a remote position with Dr. Michael Greger, who is a public <gasps> health specialist, an MD, a public health specialist, who wrote a really great book that I see on your bookshelf called How Not to Die. I can't believe you worked for the legend. So he, um, I did, he, well, what happened was he was one of the sole people at that time looking for someone to do remote work for, for mm -hmm. him. And 
at that time he needed a volunteer and an internship basically is what it was to do to help with white papers and mm-hmm. for people who aren't familiar with listeners who aren't familiar with white papers they're basically just fact papers that relay facts about a particular topic and so there's a lot of research involved in in that data collection and information collecting and and compiling all of that mm-hmm. for these white papers so my background I have a master's in experimental psychology and my whole area of focus with grad school was learning how to conduct research. So nutritionfacts.org owes its appearance to Rebecca Portman. Well, no, 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 no. Oh, gosh, no. (laughs) I would never (laughs) claim that. Um, No, 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 definitely not. They, at that time, Dr. Greger was doing a lot of white papers on factory farms in other countries, Brazil and China and uh, India and different places internationally. Interesting. And I thought, well, I can certainly do that. And this is a topic I'm very much interested in learning about. I had just started learning about factory farming. I had ne- I never knew it existed. Again, I grew up eating fried chicken and cheeseburgers. I, I thought just like the 99% of the population that my chicken came from the Publix in in a packet, you know. I mean, it was just I was never around farms. I never never thought anything about where my food came from. It was not part of my family discussion at the mm-hmm. table, or it was not part of our, my our culture, or uh, or anything like that. Um, and so I had learned about a little bit about it at a conference that the Humane Society of the United States has uh, every year called TAFA, Taking Action for Animals. What made you go to the conference? And I went to the conference because I've always been interested in animal behavior. Okay. And so I did things in the past like um, I worked at at Zoo Atlanta on a project with gorillas where I was doing observation and data collection. Mm. And I did... um, pet therapy for different at-risk children. And I did things that involved animal behavior and took classes when I, I, I worked at Emory for a while and I they paid for me to go to classes. So I took advantage of that and I would take things in animal behavior, graduate mm-hmm. courses in animal behavior, just simply because I was interested and passionate about other species and how they live and what they do and how they think and all of that. Mm-hmm. So anyway, um, when I, so when I was in Baltimore, I that feeling never left me of wanting to work with, with non-human animals. And so I, I went to this TAFA conference just on my own. Uh, I just looked at the Humane Society, uh, Humane Society of the United States website and saw that they offer it. And I went just by myself. And I learned a lot at that conference about factory farming and everything involved with uh, human health, with eating lots of animal products and all of that. Um, but predominantly what what um, what I went what I went away with after that conference was the horrors of, of industrialized farming systems. And that was when I went back and looked for a position, a volunteer position, and when I found out about Michael Greger and started doing that volunteer work with him about industrialized farming systems in these other countries. And then part of that, because he's a public health specialist, was then how factory farming was tie into human health and what happens with, you know, what are pu- public health issues around that, that, t- that type of thing. So I was really, my eyes were wa- open very wide. It changed my life. It literally, I just, um, it, at that point, told my husband that we were going to need to go plant-based in our house and at that time we were still eating chicken and fish and lots of dairy and my husband were Jewish and he at that time kept kosher which is something that Jewish people do uh, where they don't want to mix meat and milk among other things and he so we had a kosher home and we were still ordering kosher grass-fed pasture-raised beef and I said, this is, 
you know, going to stop. We're, we're going to start eating more plant-based. And it was, what I did was I signed up for, there's a woman named Colleen Patrick Goudreau. Oh, I love her. She's such an inspiration. And she was, she has a 30-day plant-based challenge, mm-hmm. vegan challenge. Yeah. And I asked my husband if he would do it with me. And my husband is a physician. At, at this time, he was doing his fellowship at Johns Hopkins. He's a pediatric neuro-oncologist. And prior to that, he did his PhD in neuroscience. So this guy is very much into research and science and the data. <laughs> and I would talk with him about the different facts I was learning, and he was challenging me all the time. And I thought, you know, will you do this 30-day challenge with me? There are podcasts. You learn about where do you get your nutrients and your vitamins? Where do you get your protein? Where do you get your iron? Where do you get your calcium? All these things that I used to really not know a lot of information information about. And physicians certainly don't know about. They go through all this medical Mm -hmm. school. My husband now will be the first person to tell you this. They don't learn anything about nutrition. And, you know, patients look to them for nutritional advice, but they really don't have it. Mm -hmm. So I knew that this whole thing would also be eye-opening for him because this, this, this program of Colleen was going to go into all of that. And so he said, okay, I'll do the 30-day challenge with you. And I said, well, let's let's make this fun. I'm going to recruit a couple other friends and their husbands to do it with us. <laughs> this is genius. Right? So I had, right? So I had, there were three or four of us, my husband and me, and then two or three of my friends and their husbands. And we all did the challenge. This is genius. Which was cool because then we could, the, the husbands didn't really, it was, it was the women who were listening to the podcast and making the husbands sit down and watch the videos. Because <laughs> that's when we started learning about forks over works. knives and all these different videos that, you know, um, that are out there that are available to the public that help with learning about these issues. Forks over knives is great. You know, Calspiracy is great for the environmental side. What the health is a great one for learning about the health component. And so we did this 30-day challenge, and I literally learned how to grocery shop because prior to that, I did it very differently. I wasn't used to, I always felt like I ate very healthy anyway. I was always uh, into exercise and, and being fit, and I always felt very healthy. And I thought that I ate very healthy. So, you know, I I thought that I was already shopping the right way. Um, so I really did have to relearn. I had to, it was, a, it was a steep learning curve. I had to learn about how to grocery shop, how to cook at home. You know, what are the um, staples to have in the pantry and the refrigerator? What are the biggest changes that you acquired with grocery shopping? I had to learn how to read labels because I've really <laughs> never done a lot of that. Um, I had to start checking to see, you know, where were the eggs and the dairy predominantly because there are so many things that we don't know that they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that was a, that was a big one. Um, I think when people are transitioning, this certainly was the case for me. We tend to look for familiar favorites and comfort foods. And so a lot of those involve products that are on the market. So rather than a whole foods, plant-based type of diet, I would have also, I would also include things like, you know, Beyond Meat beefless crumbles and the chickenless chicken strips and different products that are available at the stores that are easy to make in three minutes and stick on a bun or, you know, that type of thing. Because mm-hmm. whole foods plant-based involves a lot more cooking than just using products, obviously, because it's using grains and nuts and seeds and beans and legumes and, you know, lots of fresh fruits and vegetables. And I've, I've learned about all these amazing things that I never knew existed um, from 
learning about how to cook with those foods, which I really didn't know before. I would go get a piece of fish and slap it on the grill or a piece of ch 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 chicken, slap it on the grill, you know, like that. Um, but like who knew about jackfruit, which right. is amazing that you can now, um, I've learned make something that tastes like pulled pork, pulled barbecue pork mm -hmm. and things like that, that I've, it, it's been a really big learning curve. It's expanded our rep repertoire significantly, exponentially. Um, we eat more food now and more variety than we've ever eaten in our lives. I love it. I find it so interesting because so many people are scared <clears throat> of vegan or plant-based diet because they think it's going to limit them. But really, most of the experiences that I hear from people like you that, in fact, it does the opposite and it expands the variety of choices and foods that you're able to make and cook and eat because of that. Yeah, it's really cool. Absolutely. Yeah, so... I, you know, the story goes on and on, but ultimately we did the 30 day challenge. One of my friends, I, we stuck with it. My husband is the cook in our home and always has been, he, he cooks, I clean. <laughs> and I have to say that I was very fortunate that I have a partner who fully supports me and said, okay, I fully support this. I will only cook vegan at home. I will only cook plant-based at home. And he totally embraced it. And I, it did help for him to learn about, I would have him listen to the podcasts from the 30 day challenge. And, um, you know, so again, it was very eye opening for him from a nutritional standpoint, even though he's an MD. Um, one of my other girlfriends also still is plant-based and this is, I guess, seven years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, one of them didn't do it, but is now plant now fully plant-based so it, it, it was a really fun thing to do. I, I've recommended that to other people who are interested in exploring plant-based because um, it feels like a, a support group, you know, and I've encouraged to do the 30-day vegan challenge um, because whether, whether you choose to stick with it or not, it still exposes you and helps you to learn about it mm -hmm. um, in a fun way. How did you manage to convince your, your friends to participate with you? I mean, I, think I have a some great, great friends, idea, but the fact that they agreed, I think that's just yeah. mind blowing. I have a, there's a group of girlfriends that I have from Baltimore that are just really open-minded. That's really cool. And adventurous. Mm -hmm. And, um, they, we just have that kind of relationship that if, if one of us says, Hey, you should try this. We trust the other person to know that, oh, that must be worthwhile. Right. If she's saying that, there must be something really good about that. You know what I mean? And not just me. I mean, I feel the same way about the yeah. other girls. Um, so that was how I kind of got into, and, and then working with Dr. Greger uh, for the internship, learning more about industrialized farming systems, it started becoming really multifactorial for me. And I think that that's a big part of how someone maintains a, a whole foods plant-based diet or a vegan diet um, or lifestyle mm -hmm. is because it's not just about animals for me. Um, it's also health and it's also environment. Yeah. And as I started learning more and more about all the different factors involved, I could not look the other way because it, it affects every aspect of your life. Everything that you do in your day-to-day -day life is impacted or you are impacting something involving healthy environment or other beings. Give us an example of that. I'm definitely on the same page with you, but for the listeners, give us an example of that. Well, um, for one, I will say that it took me about before I did the 30 day challenge, it took me, I had given up everything except dairy. I had a very difficult time with giving up cheese because there's casomorphine in cheese, which acts like a, an addictive component like morphine does. And it's just a it's, a, it's a chemical in the cheese itself. It's part of its makeup that I certainly didn't know about until I started learning about the structure of dairy and cheese. Um, and so cheese was a big part of my life and it was very difficult to give up A, because of the queso morphine, but B, just because I loved cheese. Put it on everything. 
I eat cheese toast for breakfast, cheese toast for lunch, and cheese toast for dinner, <laughs> you know, like that. Talking about diversity. Yeah. And so, exactly. That's why I'm saying I eat many more foods now. <laughs> so, giving up. So, when I finally gave up cheese, I noticed something that happened with my health that I didn't expect. I used to have a flutter type of thing in my heart that I thought was strange. It it almost would feel like my heart would skip a beat, like it would go bloop, and it would happen once or twice a month. And I thought it was very strange, but I didn't really pay attention to it so much to go to a doctor. But when I gave up the dairy, and I and I know this, I know that it was the dairy because I had given up everything else for an entire year before I gave up the dairy. So it wasn't, it was six months, maybe not even that long, maybe three months after I gave up the dairy. I never experienced that again, that, that uh, mm-hmm. flutter in my heart, which didn't feel normal. It wasn't normal. And I've not had it since. So for seven years, I haven't had this weird thing in my heart that, that felt like it wasn't supposed to be there. I also um, used to have a lot of phlegm because dairy produces phlegm, and I would always go <coughs> like that. Mm-hmm. I'd lay in bed at night, and my husband would be like, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, um, I never, ever, ever have that anymore, the hums <coughs> since I gave up dairy. Those, those tangible things that one starts to experience from a health perspective enable you to realize, wow, this really does have an impact on the way I feel and my health. But then I also was grateful that I was not supporting what was happening on dairy farms anymore. I, I don't even want to say dairy farm. Um, I, I feel like that's too nice of a term but in a factory farm with dairy cows, which is that they are continuously impregnated so that they can produce milk. And then their their calves are obviously taken away. They cry for days. It's a horrendous situation to, to see and to hear about and to read about and to learn about. And all the information is out there and it's it's they're just facts and people turn their heads away from it. But from an animal welfare side, um, it felt enormous. It felt profound to not support that anymore. Um, and then after learning about what's happening with in the environment from industrialized farming systems, which industrialized farming systems cause a significant part of our greenhouse gas emissions and um, lead to a lot of waste in natural resources, water, land, soil, oil. Um, runoff is a huge issue from factory farms. So we have horrible issues in our oceans with things like what are called dead zones where mm-hmm. fish aren't even able to breathe. There are so many environmental components of that, that are um, negative effects of factory farming that you know, dairy obviously is just one piece of that. You know, there's also the meat industry and the chicken industry, but I'm just focusing on cheese right now. So, you know, but even just that little piece, I mean, I do have to say that, that um, from an environmental standpoint, a meat, like a confined animal feeding operation that's for meat cows is, is, has a significantly higher, um, detrimental impact on the environment than the dairy industry. I remember one statistic that really stood out for me from reading, I think was it the, the Food Revolution or the, the Diet for, for the New America by John Robbins, is that for every burger, they cut down like a, a size of a half kitchen of Amazon forest just to, cause to make up for that, not to make up for that, but to dedicate that land to animal agriculture specifically. I mean animal agriculture is the number one 
occupant of the land, right? I think 80% of the farmable land is dedicated to animal agriculture. And that's just mind-blowing, especially as we talked briefly before that we started recording in light of the recent um, the IPCC report from the United Nations that we had, what, 12 years to get our act together uh, before projected 1.5 degrees Celsius of temperature increase will, will come into effect. And if we don't do anything, I mean, I think that there is a quote, something like the effects of, of that change in temperature simply cannot be known because nothing like that ever happened before. I mean, this is pretty scary. This is our time to act on this now. <laughs> yeah, it is. This is unprecedented, this change in climate. And the rapid rate is, is I would say that the destruction of land, the, the expanse of land being depleted, rainforest and every other types for factory farms and for food to feed the animals on the factory yeah. farms because it's it's not just clearing lands to house the animals. Oh, They're yeah. clearing land to put monocultures, okay, of corn and soy and whatever they, you know, wanna whatever they feed the the animals on the factory farms, pre predominantly corn and soy. Uh, leveling all those to feed to the animals, you know. So you're looking at the destruction of all these natural resources that uh, trees that help with our environment, right? With giving out oxygen mm -hmm. and taking in carbon dioxide, you're de we're destroying that, okay? And then we're also destroying land that could otherwise be used for feeding our growing population of people that are taking up space on our planet. So we have about seven and a half billion people on the planet right now. It's going to be about nine and a half billion people by 2050, I think it is. Um, so how do we account for that? You know, if we're just using all the land to not feed the, directly feed the people, but feed the animals that then feed the people. And so, um, yeah, there are so many wasted resources from an environmental standpoint. Yeah, You know, water is a significant um, contribution for factory farms. Mm -hmm. um, I really like the Bruce Friedrich's talk on that and just in general his message from the Good Food Institute in terms of efficiency and inefficiency of food agriculture, animal agriculture specifically, how talk, he talks about what, with chicken being the most efficient quote-unquote meat but still it's, it takes seven calories to go into chicken for us to get one calorie from chicken. So it's mm -hmm. just so inefficient. And for beef and pork and other and dairy, it's, it's even worse than that. So like we can think about it. We can either have seven calories or we can waste those seven calories and get one calorie of chicken plus all the externalities of the environmental pollution that go into from growing that chicken and, and chicken having the life of suffering. So yeah, I'm, it's... Yeah, the calorie convert conversion is minimal, mm -hmm. um, and that that's for beef as well. And it's even worse for beef. right. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so, I want to get back. I want to get back into your work now. So the the work that you do. So you said you your uh, you had the internship with uh, Dr. Greger, and then how did that transition into the work that you do today? I moved from Baltimore to Atlanta, mm -hmm. and at that time. There was, I was doing volunteer work for the Humane Society of the United States, just kind of whatever was needed. There's a, there's generally a state director for the Humane Society of the United States in the different states around the nation. And at that time, there was not one for Georgia. And I was trying to just kind of fill in gaps when I could or however I could. And so really just getting to know people within the organization and then they open a position for a food and nutrition coordinator within the division of farm animal protection. Mm -hmm. And I jumped on that. <laughs> By that time, we had a state director. We had acquired a Georgia state director. Her name is Deborah Berger, and she's lovely. Berger is, is her last name? Berger, yes. How wonderful. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Right? B-E-R-G-E-R. -E -E oh, that's um, a bean burger. <laughs> right. There you go. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think about that, but right, Deborah Burger. 
And she is an amazing state director. Shout out to Deborah Berger. Um, so at at this time, we you know we we had acquired her, and then they opened up this position, and um, yeah, it was just kind of a natural fit at that time. I think for me to go into working with what I do is I work with institutions who are interested in for all these different reasons we've been talking about health and environment and and animals to reduce the amount of animal products that they are purchasing and serving and consuming and increasing their plant-based options so it's not an all-or-nothing type of discussion it's not hey everybody go vegan it's just look you know we've really got to think about this from a realistic standpoint if we're if we're going to have any impact on any positive impact on our health on our environment um for the most part because that's what from an institutional standpoint that's really what it's mostly about is health environment and then cost, cost savings. Mm -hmm. So let me take a stab at my perspective with the work that you do and you can correct me or edit it as needed. Um, so you help institutions let's, such as, let's say, schools or prisons or um, hospitals, uh, and you provide them with resources and training, um, their food and beverage department. You provide them with resources and training and how to incorporate more plant-based options into the foods that they provide uh, at their cafeteria or through their food services. Um, and you help them with either building the menu or building the, the items they can put in the menu they can that have been proven to work at other facilities already. One, so they're, um, they appeal to the crowd. Two, they're very cost-effective. So you also help them build a business case why serving plant-based options business-wise make, makes more sense than serving meat or dairy options because it, it's better on the pocket, on the bottom line. Um, and then also you help uh, with a coordinating and arranging any kind of training for the staff to both prepare the meals and give them the skills to how to prepare those plant-based meals in a way that's tasty basically and also give the staff the motivation so give them that context right of why is it good for your health why is it good for the animals fair why is it good for the environment so give and inspire the staff to be on board with with using and and preparing those plant-based options is that correct you have done your research you guys are hiring <laughs> <laughs> that was a great synopsis I'm like, wow, that's better than I describe it. <laughs> yeah, you hit the nail on each head. I would say the only other part of that is I feel like there's this, and, and you did touch on it, there is kind of this educational piece because a lot of this is new mm -hmm. for a lot of people that we're talking to and running into and working with. Um, a lot of people have never even heard of quinoa you know, or know how to, certainly don't know how to cook with it, or have any concept of factory farms, just like I didn't have any, right? Mm -hmm. So it's really engaging people in conversation and getting the conversation started, really exposing people to this information in a gentle way that doesn't feel threatening. Mm -hmm. And... Yeah, and so that we can have conversation about it and really see what works for their institution and where they are and their staff and their business and mm -hmm. and so and that can look that looks different for different institutions certainly depending on you know where where they are and and um in the you know, in the business in terms of whether it's K through 12 schools or versus university versus healthcare. And mm -hmm. so that looks differently for the different sectors. But yeah, that's really, you nailed it. And I'm sure it probably a lot depends on the support from the leadership as well um, and kind of buy-in from the leadership. Um, tell us maybe, give us an example about one of the like successful events that you've hosted and kind of how you approached it and what change it made maybe. 
we've done a couple of things that I've loved. Um, one was a K through 12 training that we did, K through 12 school district that we worked with in South Carolina, actually, Richland County. And when we went in there, the food service director, because that's usually who I work with, is the food service director makes the decisions about what goes on the menu. Mm -hmm. So I'm generally working with the food service director or the executive chef, that type of, of person. And the, this food service director was so excited and so into this that she had aprons and table tent cards made for her staff and to put around for when we came in to do the training. And they all were really nice looking and they said, plant strong. And she was doing things prior to our, we were doing a hands-on training with her staff. She was doing things prior to them to, to get them excited about it. And then also during with, with the marketing and then she had a bunch of media come in and cover what we did during the training and, and interview some of the people there and her and us. And it was on like three different news channels throughout the community. And what so people was it? Richland, Richland. County. Mm -hmm. huh. And I just, that type of excite, excitement was so refreshing um, to see and to hear and to experience. We did something with Atlanta Public Schools where we had for uh, Earth Day, it was about two years ago, mm -hmm. where we worked with them to do a all-vegetarian, mostly plant-based, some vegetarian for the entire district for the day that they were serving to the kids. And it was covered by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And part of the excitement for me was, was seeing the food service director Dr. Hughes was so excited and thrilled because no one said, where's the beef? She was so pleasantly surprised because it was just good food. I love it. We just serve good food and everybody wants to eat it. And you don't mention that it's, you don't say this is vegetarian or this is plant-based. You just serve good food and people just want to eat it, right? It looks good. It tastes good. Um, and so a big part of the learning process for me, and I think for a lot of people doing this is the concept that food, good food is just good food. If you label it a certain way, people have connotations and expectations. If you use the word vegan or healthy or things like that, then maybe a kid doesn't want to eat it or a college, you know, that type of thing. But if you just put out good food and you don't go into saying much about it except here's your lasagna and it just happens to be plant-based, Everybody, everybody's going to want to eat it. So that's something that we're, that's part of the education piece that forward food, that we with forward food are helping people learn about at mm -hmm. these institutions is that, you know, it, it's, it's, it's just serving people the option of good food and it happens to be healthy. <laughs> I love it. It's so interesting though. You're so right. Cause, uh, like the, the, the putting the staple on the food, like healthy choices or this good, this food is good for you or it's healthy or whatever. It almost like sometimes deters people from trying it. And it's like, how do you, like, where is, where is that line? You know, how do yeah. you encourage healthy food, but don't label it healthy food? <laughs> yeah. I mean, just recently I was reading a study from the, out of the London School of Economics and they did a study where they had and this was in the restaurant business, but they looked at, they compared menus and they compared menus that integrated the veg options, the vegetarian options into just what it said versus a menu that had a vegetarian section. Mm -hmm. People who chose vegetarian options increased by 56% on the menu where they just mixed it in and didn't separate it out in the on a different section. And the same thing happens in cafeterias. You separate out, you know, a vegan station or a vegetarian station, the rest of the population of kids are probably not going to go over there and get the food. But if you just integrate all those options onto all the different stations and you don't label it, maybe you put like a little green V. So mm -hmm. because people who are vegan know to look for that. 
But then the other people aren't paying attention. They just see good food. And that way, your mainstream is eating that food. You're not just trying to serve vegans and vegetarians then. You're just putting out good food. Everybody has the opportunity to eat it. You're not separating it out in the corner. And this is what marketing and research or the research around marketing is showing more and more is that, you know, you don't stick it out in the corner. You just put it all in together and then everybody wants to eat it. That's so interesting. So these are part of the things that, you know, they, it seems like common sense, but it's, it really, it's not the way we're used to thinking about food when we're, when we're talking about vegan or plant-based. And so these are just the conversations that we have with different institutions and expose them to, um, you know, how it's being done at other places successfully and, and that type of thing. What are, what are the trends that you're seeing right now? And are you seeing anything like, is it, is it, is it becoming more welcomed and more accepted or is there resistance? People are seem more familiar. They're, they're clueless. What do you see there when, when you do your work? It's absolutely clear that more and more people ask for plant-based options in college, university, in schools, school districts. Um, I'm hoping that we're going to see more and more of this in healthcare. And um, there have been some hospitals that have already started seeing a lot of headway with this in California and New York. Mm-hmm. Um, and hoping that we'll see more of that on the East Coast. Um, but it's absolutely something that more kids and, you know, I think it's partly generational that the Gen Z, they know that they care about where their food comes from. Right. They're more interested in environmental factors. They are more interested in knowing what's in their food, you know, whether it's been whether it's whether that be GMO or hormones or whatever it may be, they're just in general more interested in knowing where did their food come, you know, come from? How did, how did it get under their plates? And so, um, and they're exposed to different foods. I did not grow up eating even beans. And my daughter, who is, well, she'll be 12 next month, that's a big staple of hers is beans. Um, hummus, you know, things like that, chickpeas, garbanzo beans, you can do so many things with. Oh, I love garbanzo beans. Yeah. Um, just, you know, the, they have exposure to different varieties of foods than I think previous generations did. Yeah, I would expect if we were talking between like prisons, kindergartens, colleges, or, or healthcare or hospitals, I would expect colleges probably be the most on board probably because of, of the customers asking for it, for more plant-based options. Is that what you see? Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. As a matter of fact, our work with Forward Food exploded with college and university over the last few years. Um, and then K-12 schools and school districts started getting on board more, and that exploded. We've seen next week, actually, I'm doing a culinary workshop with the largest school district in the state of Georgia, which is Cobb County. And Yay. What's exciting is that the food service director chose recipes that we're going to work with that have ingredients that she knows she can get and easily and immediately integrate onto the menu. Oh, so amazing. she's really interested in not just providing, you know, this training to her staff where she can check off a box that says, oh, look, we just had some professional learning. But they really want to move forward quickly with adding more plant-based options to the menu to provide that for their students. And part of that is because students are asking for it, mm-hmm. which is really exciting. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so what do you eat? You can eat meat. You can eat dairy. So what is it that you eat? Give me a few staples that are your favorite. Well, I eat a lot. I personally eat a lot of avocado and lots of beans. There are 40,000 varieties of beans. <laughs> and I probably eat maybe only six of those. So I have a lot to explore. Um, I eat tofu. I love 
to made tofu made different ways. I actually do like seitan and tempeh. I love tempeh. Um, I didn't like tempeh when I first started eating plant-based, but I love it now. Um, I eat probably a lot of brown rice more than, that's probably the grain I eat the most. Although we do eat, like last night we made farro and we use bulgur and millet. Mm-hmm. And so with lots of whole ancient grains that there are so many varieties of those and you can you can just mix them in with whatever dish you're making and it provides so much fiber and sustenance and fills you up. Mm-hmm. Um, we do a lot of things like burritos and Indian-inspired flavors, curries. We love curry and um, Mexican, and um, we do pizza. We do. My husband makes homemade pizza every Sunday night, um, and you know that's something that you can certainly do without cheese because there are so many things that you can just put on there. But I actually get there are so many varieties of plant-based cheeses now that you just buy in, at Kroger or Publix or Target or wherever. And so I like the follow your heart provolone mm-hmm. cheese. On my I don't think pizza. I've tried that one yet. And they have a mozzarella. And um, yeah, there are so many things available now for people who eat plant based at the grocery it's store so if you want to substitute. It's not something that I do every day in terms of those substitutions, mm-hmm. but it's certainly something I do. You know, if I get a craving for a piece of cheese toast um I'll go put a you know toast a piece of bread with one of the the there's chow c-h-a-o or follow your heart or um violife is another one that's Mm -hmm. really good they have a a plant-based parmesan that's fabulous um to sprinkle on your pasta or you know lasagna or whatever um what else do I? Oh, I do smoothies and um, I love sauteed things like sauteed kale with garlic and olive oil. I mean, I'm just kind of, you know, those are my, I love that type of food. Um, you know, your palate changes. That's just what happens to everybody. Mm-hmm. The more you explore these different flavor profiles, the more you become interested in them and actually start craving them. Um, your palate just changes. It does, no matter what you're eating. And then also your microbiome changes as well and that you get different cravings and you get used to different foods. Absolutely. Your, your whole gut flora mm-hmm. is altered in a, in a good way. Um, so I, I like to say I have – this might be a little TMI – for this podcast, but I have friends who are constipated a lot. And I try to explain to them that part of the reason is because the standard American diet probably more than anything lacks fiber. Fiber, you know, people say, where do you get your protein? I want to say, well, where do you get your fiber? Where do you get your fiber? It's so important. Yes. And one thing that I get and my family is regularly is fiber and we are so regular and my daughter <laughs> who is is uh, going to be 12 I mentioned that earlier goes to the bathroom like twice a day regularly because she gets so much fiber and a lot of her friends don't <laughs> and aren't as comfortable as she is <laughs> right but it's so true like the question is, where so, do you get your protein there is zero percent of Americans who are deficient in protein Right. But there are 97% of Americans that are deficient in fiber. So why doesn't anybody ask, where do you get your fiber? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And and the average American gets about, I don't remember the statistic, but significantly more protein than they need. Oh, yes. Than, than, it, than your system needs. Like double the amount. Yeah, and significantly less fiber than they need. And even like yeah. the standard set. By the, uh, but what is it? Who sets the standards? USDA? No, FDA. The the standards for daily intake of the protein. Is it the uh, American Dietetic Association? Exactly. Yeah, or? I think well, the standard is what, about 30 to 40 grams of fiber per day? But even that is arguable. Dr. Greger has plenty of 
information mm -hmm. to prove that our ancestors used to get like up to 100 grams of fiber right. but it's not that at least like 60 70 grams not 30. yeah and and i think one thing also people don't understand is when you get more protein than you need it's not like your body stores it for later to use it turns into things that are not good for you are not healthy for you so but those are not things that we grow up knowing you know we just yeah. think oh i got I need to go run a marathon so i need to eat something like a burger and that you know and and what we know now is from athletes is that they perform better on a plant-based diet and the recovery rate is quicker exactly yeah what about the uh, notion that eating plant-based diet is very expensive right so i think that that perception is partly because of people thinking about products. But if you think about eating a whole foods plant-based diet, there's no comparison when you look at the cost of a can of beans versus a pound of beef or even a pound of chicken or looking at whole grains versus, you know, um, some fish or, you know, whatever. And, and, those things also, these plant-based foods like beans and legumes and grains have a longer shelf life, you know, so they're not, they're not, like, they're not only like cost less, but they last longer. Mm -hmm. Now, fruits and vegetables, maybe they're thinking that they have to buy organic, which are more expensive, but you don't have to buy organic. You know, fruits and vegetables, they're, now I'm not saying there aren't food deserts because there are there are places that don't have access to fresh fruits and fruits and vegetables um and that it's certainly a problem for those areas and i'm fortunate that i don't live in an environment where i have to struggle for finding fresh fruits and vegetables but i know that they are there are many of them out there um fortunately there are organizations that are trying to deal with that, which is a whole other side of work, mm -hmm. um, which is a, super important. You know, so how do people eat a whole foods plant-based diet when they don't have access to these things? Right. It's hard. It is. Yeah. And so um, I'll put a plug in for Dr. Jennifer Rook, who is getting ready to publish a book. Oh, she's amazing. About when you don't have a lot of money and you do live in a community community like that, how do you go grocery shopping? How do you stock your pantry and your and your refrigerator to eat whole foods plant based? She's put another book about that. Yes, I will have to get her. Yes, podcast it's too. about and 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 because she's a physician, in her book, it's talking about how do you do this and get all the nutrients and vitamins and minerals that your body needs mm -hmm. from a medical standpoint. So it's going to be all integrated into this book. I can't wait to read it. Oh, my God. I can't wait. Yeah, she's a she's rock a, star. She is. She's a physician at, for listeners. She's been on the faculty at Morehouse School of Medicine for about 30 years. Mm -hmm. And she, I first met her, the plant-based prevention of disease, two years ago now in New Mexico. And it was interesting because we, we, we didn't know each other and we met all the way up in New Mexico. And we were like, oh, my God, you're from Atlanta, too. We had to go on the other side of the, of the country to meet each other. And actually, funny enough, but through Dr. Jennifer Rook is how I found the position within Amory that um, I am occupying right now. So it's, it's, a, it's a remarkable path for both of us. I well, for me, especially. That. That's but, awesome. Yeah, she's really cool. I have a special place in my heart for her, for sure. Um, okay. Is there, are there any other things? Well, first, no, tell me, where do you see hope? Where do you see this movement going? Um, what gives you passion? What gives you fire to wake up every day and do the work that you do? The research that I read every week, there's a new article or a new um, announcement or every week there's something coming out where they're talking about so-and-so dining hall is offering more plant-based options or they open a plant-based dining hall because students are asking for it, staff are asking for it, or because they want to serve healthy options to their patients or because they're trying to reduce their environmental 
food print. Um, <laughs> every week I'm reading something in the news. You know, it might be in, in Bloomberg business news, or it might be in the New York Times or the Washington Post or Food Service Director magazine. But every week I'm reading information coming out about people getting on the bandwagon of integrating more plant-based into their lifestyle. And again, you know, it's not something that people are going to do overnight or, or want to even do all or nothing. I think there's a big place for the reducitarian or flexitarian lifestyle that we're hearing more about where people are just more cognizant. They're more aware of the environmental and, and health effects of, mm-hmm. of factory farms and animal products and, and want to reduce all that in their lives. So that gives me hope. What also gives me hope is working with the uh, early child care programs like uh, Kinder Care and uh, Early Head Start and these programs that we work with. We're doing big regional trainings with them. And knowing that we're having an impact on these children from a very young age so that I know that that generation is now going to be exposed to all these different foods and attitudes and behaviors because the attitude and the behavior parts of it, of this are, are, <laughs> Super important. I mean, you know, they're really the crux of of moving the dial. Yeah. And by working with these early childcare programs and with the staff there, um, I, I feel like we're going to see some behavioral and attitudinal shifts in society, starting with a very young age, uh, you know, of, of the children. And as they grow up, they're going to be asking for these things and know more about it. That is where I really feel excited. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's so important to instill this this habits early on. I mean, we underestimate. You know, a lot of I hear a lot of parents say, "Well, my my child would never eat that." You know, all they want is French fries and chicken fingers. Well, that's because that's all they know. You know, if we, if they were, I mean, it's so easy to make fruits and vegetables exciting for children. I mean, they want to know what it's all about. And if you put, I love that, that kind of, the, the symbolism. Like if you give a child a carrot and a little bunny, the child is not going to dive in and rip a head of a bunny and eat it alive. It's going to play with a bunny and eat a carrot. And it's like so simple. It's instilled in them when they're young, but then... If they keep being forced this this foods that they have they would have no way of catching or you know cooking on their own like how how would they know otherwise and then if they are engaged in the decision making and uh, learning what is this vegetable what does it look like when it grows what does it look like when it's ready to eat how do we make it and then making it fun and exciting for them to try new things it it's so easy to make it exciting for them. Yeah, and that's why I feel blessed to live in a community like I do or like we do in Decatur where we have an amazing program through Georgia Organics mm-hmm. um, who's doing a tremendous job, an incredible job with farm-to-school programs and helping schools have gardens on site so that kids are learning more about where their food comes from and growing it themselves, and they're doing taste tests with things like bok choy and kale, and right? So these kids are exposed to these foods. They get to taste it at their schools. Mm-hmm. Um, those programs are really key in providing a lot of the children the opportunity to, you know, for exposure to these foods and to taste them that they might not otherwise have at home. And they may still go home and not have the opportunity to eat them. But mm. they will have been exposed to them right. and know about them as they're growing up. And so those are those programs play a critical role in this. And I'm grateful that we have them. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I have a final question to ask you. But before I do that, is there anything else, any other tips or pieces of wisdom that you wanted to share with the listeners? Oh, well, I would encourage anyone who's interested in 
integrating more of a plant-based diet into your into their lifestyle to look at it in ways that don't feel daunting so for instance let's take exercise for an example mm -hmm. let's say you you're in an exercise regime and something happens you get sick or whatever or you work you to travel you get off of it you got to get back into it and you're like oh my gosh now i've got to how am I going to work it back into my schedule? How am I going to do this and this and this? I got to get it back, you know, but how am I going to do that? And instead of thinking about, well, I just got to go sign up for a membership and start going to three classes a week and get back into the program, you think, oh, wait a minute. No, what if I just say, you know what? I've got a um, phone call meeting. It's going to be a 20-minute phone call. I'm going to just go for a walk around the neighborhood while I'm on that call. And do something that feels doable mm -hmm. and not daunting and a, a goal that's attainable and very easy to reach and something that you can get instant gratification for because we're we kind of like that <laughs> I recommend doing things like that so for instance rather than saying I'm gonna be vegan <laughs> um just say you know what tomorrow is Tuesday and for lunch I'm gonna just see if I can eat a plant-based lunch. I'm gonna see if I can, I'm gonna go explore what's in my dining hall or in my refrigerator at the grocery store, at this restaurant that is all plant-based and just see what are my options and what it tastes like and how it makes me feel and just experiment with it. And do things like that so that you can gradually gain exposure and, and taste things and I think that that's um, much more doable and attainable and much more likely to be lasting, mm -hmm. long lasting than just trying to do something overnight. That's such a great advice. That's such a great advice because I think people uh, get intimidated by the extremes, by thinking black or white. And if you can just do it perfectly, they just give up altogether. But as you mentioned, Colleen Patrick Gaudreau, I love the saying from her. Don't do nothing because you can do everything. Do something. Do anything. And I love it. It, it just speaks to my heart and it's exactly what, as you, what you talk about. Yes. Do anything. Yes. And the other quote or saying that I love from her that I use all the time is intention, not perfection. Mm. And that's kind of my life motto. And I really got that from her because I'm not perfect. I mean... I, I am intention, not perfection. I, if I'm in a restaurant and they accidentally put, you know, if, if they serve me something and they say, oh, that was, that has something in it, you know, like a broth or something that I didn't know, I generally don't send it back unless it's, that doesn't happen. I mean, that rarely happens to me because I'm always, you know, I have discussion about it. I'm usually at a plant-based restaurants, but, you know, again, it's intention, it. not perfection. Yeah. You know, so not, um, I don't freak out about every little thing. I'm just, it's just, you know. Yeah. I think that that's uh, an, a good way to. That's a good motto to go You know, by. and I think also, um, I think it's important for us as a society to not try to turn our backs on the science and the data about what's happening environmentally with factory farm systems and um, you know it's easy to just say I don't want to hear about that I don't want to know about that um, but I feel like it's our responsibility on this planet you know to um, to live to live a life that is the least harmful possible. Yeah. To leave for our, our future generations. Or even just to enjoy while we're here, just out of mere respect for life. And when I say life, I mean Earth and our solar system and our planets. I don't just mean animals. Yeah. No, I agree. This is a perfect lead into my final question about kindness. And I like different people and guests that I have a lot of respect for to define what kindness means to them, to maybe help other people to define their kindness for themselves. So could you talk about what kindness means to you? Kindness, 
for me is pretty simple. It's doing unto others mm. as I would have done to me, right? So treating people the way I would want to be treated and being thoughtful and considerate and respectful um, and interested in what's going on around me and other people um, for their welfare mm-hmm. and um, knowing that I am a very, I'm a microcosm in this crazy, unfathomable um, solar system, beyond solar system, you know, that we have our galaxy and and everything else and knowing that um my place on this earth is so minute (laughs) um and just always keeping that in perspective yeah so if people hear this and they get inspired and they're like i want to bring rebecca on to my organization see if she can make some changes and educate my staff and kitchen and chefs how would they contact you they can go to my email address, which is rportman, R-P-O-R-T-M-A-N, at humanesociety.org. They can also go to our Forward Food website, which is forwardfood.org. And, and I'll make they sure can to contact you. <laughs> yes, reach out to me, Christina, at followyourkind.com, but I'll also uh, will include the links on the show notes so it's easier for people to reach out if they want to. Great. Thank you so much for your time today, Rebecca. Thank you. It's been fun. For more information, you can go to followyourkind.com or follow me on Instagram at kindchristina. Please also subscribe to the show and give me a good review. Thanks for stopping by.